From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Sexually transmitted infections were steadily on the rise. Gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. We had seen just a consistent uptick nationally and in Colorado. And then the pandemic hit. So what has stay at home meant for STIs? And what's the picture now that restrictions are loosening? Then we'll remember the first and only black justice on the state Supreme Court. A friend says he won't forget Gregory Kellum Scott's brains and bow ties. Later, a Fort Collins comedian opens a club during the pandemic. I was like, I'll just run comedy shows. I'll get people who know how to run bars. Great. And then I got in. I'm like, Google. I'm like, ooh, what are taxes? <laughs> you know, like that's, <laughs> there's more to it. Also this hour, Purplish takes on the public option. Donate your car to Colorado Public Radio today. Any make, any model, we'll take it. If it's a lemon, we'll turn it into lemonade. If it's taking up space, we'll get it off your lawn. If it's a car you love, we'll turn it into the programs you love. Find answers to FAQs and start the safe and easy car donation process right now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. For the last year, public health officials have been focused on the spread of COVID-19. But heading into the pandemic, Colorado was facing a different trend in disease of the sexually transmitted variety. I think we, you know, have seen an increase in gonorrhea, chlamydia and syphilis, as well as severe complications of syphilis, such as congenital syphilis across the United States for over five years. This is Dr. Karen Wendell, director of HIV, STI prevention and control at Denver Public Health. So we had seen just a consistent uptick nationally and in Colorado. And then the pandemic hit. Yes, then the pandemic hit. And we wondered, with so many people distancing, might there have been a dip in STI, sexually transmitted infections? And now, with the world starting to reopen, might these kinds of infections come roaring back? Let's tackle the first question first. What we saw was an initial drop in cases being identified when COVID-19 hit. But there were multiple things going into that, which included people certainly doing some social distancing, but also lack of access to care and lack of access to testing. And so clinics were closing down, reducing their volume that they could see, and certainly reducing asymptomatic screenings. In other words, the picture's really fuzzy because testing plummeted when people were staying at home. A lot of community testing sites hit pause. And in a fascinating twist, supplies dried up. Because of shifting in testing kits to COVID-19 kits, Mm. there was a shortage of tests for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And so suddenly, healthcare centers all over the United States were finding that they couldn't even test when they wanted to test Mm. because there was a shortage in kits. And so the CDC put out some recommendations on how to prioritize that testing to try to get kits to the most um, affected individuals and kind of deal with the shortages that we had. Thankfully, in the last month or two, those shortages have begun to resolve. So I think we're all expecting a big, unfortunate surge in numbers as we move forward. In looking in Colorado, even though all of those things were true, 
social distancing and decreased access to testing, we still had increased numbers of STIs being reported. And so in particular, I think one of the things that is most compelling and concerning is an increase in congenital syphilis cases that we saw in Colorado. And so in 2019, we had 11 cases. In 2020, just reporting from January to December of this year, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment reported 20 cases of congenital syphilis. That is syphilis transmitted from mother to baby, a doubling there, which could have been avoided if mom had had access to treatment. And that's the other concerning thing about the past year. The pandemic not only meant less testing, it reduced access to prevention and treatment of particular concern when it comes to HIV, which had also been on the rise, says Dr. Wendell. Unfortunately, we anticipate um, having missed the opportunity to diagnose a lot of HIV infections early. And also, I think we are concerned about the access to pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a highly effective preventative treatment for HIV. That's commonly known as PrEP. Yep, PrEP. Absolutely, that people can get access to and prevent those HIV infections. We are really concerned about what that access might look like. Uh, Many clinics try to rapidly pivot to telehealth provision of PrEP. Our clinic was among them. And so, you know, I'm happy to say that our our number of folks that we were able to start on PrEP each month was about 97% of what it was before the pandemic hit, after we converted to that telehealth format. And, you know, just so happy that so many clients were able to really adapt to that new way to get care. And that may be a silver lining here. The pandemic taught public health officials that they can, at least to some extent, prevent sexually transmitted infections remotely, provided patients have that sort of digital access. We're always concerned that people who are disproportionately affected, who may have barriers in technology use and language barriers, are the folks who are going to get hit the hardest video formats or telephone formats that can be much more challenging for folks that English is not their primary language or that don't have a smartphone at home or that have other issues regarding confidentiality. As for that second question I raised earlier, with more folks getting vaccinated for COVID-19 and able to mingle again, might we expect an STI surge? Well, says Dr. Karen Wendell, that too is difficult to answer because the baseline is all messed up from the unusual past year. If rates appear to skyrocket, it may be that people are just getting screened again. Before we hung up, I had one more question for Dr. Wendell. How are you doing? Like, in other words, um, your whole world was fighting viruses. And then comes along, you know, the virus everyone pays attention to, COVID-19. Does this feel to some extent like... A lost year, a, I don't know. I just, I kind of want to know what it's like to be Karen right now. (laughs) So I think I would say that for all of us doing HIV and STI prevention, it has felt very challenging and we're very concerned about the clients that we think are affected by sexual health illnesses. And we certainly believe they've had a decrease in access and um, testing and that, you know, we may find out over the next year that our epidemic is, you know, far worse than what we'd seen before. But we really don't know yet. And there's a possibility that it will be the same level or even down. We don't know yet. But there are so many things that came together to reduce services. It certainly raises concern. 
And since the trend had been nothing but up for both gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, all three of our big sexually transmitted diseases had continued to rise. And even HIV, if you look from 2014 to 2018 in Colorado, even with all the tools that we have, early treatment in HIV, pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, so PrEP and PEP, even with all of that, our cases have gone up 1.8%. A function, says Dr. Wendell, of reduced condom use and easy access to sex online and through apps. Add the pandemic and a complicated public health picture becomes even more so. A key takeaway Get tested if you've been sexually active, even if you don't have symptoms of an STI. Early detection and early treatment could mean a longer, healthier life, even after the threat of COVID-19 subsides. When it comes to health care, it's a safe bet that most of us want the same thing, lower costs and more generous coverage. But how to do that is the big question. Well, that is the focus of Purplish this week, the politics podcast from CPR News. Let's check in with public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. It's not an election year, and yet if you're watching much television lately, you may have seen something that most of us hoped would go away for a while. Colorado is more than a state. It's a state of mind. Here, we each do things our own way. And yet, state politicians want to create a one-size-fits-all government health insurance system called the state government option. Dramatic, right? The the synthesizers, the music, and a little unusual, actually, that a single state bill among all the hundreds that lawmakers are considering right now has attracted a seven-figure opposition ad campaign. Yeah, definitely. And yet, here we are with the public option, maybe one of the biggest bills of this session. And that's what we're talking about on this episode of Purplish, the intense debate about how big of a role state government should play in healthcare. And we've set ourselves a good challenge today. We have a topic that I find personally amazingly interesting, something that has potentially really profound consequences. It also happens to be pretty complicated. Yes, I think that's putting it mildly. To that end, we should probably start with just what is a public option. Democrats' big proposal to lower health care costs in Colorado, but what actually is it? Do you want a little history lesson? Sure. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's an idea that uh, really came into the public consciousness in the U.S. when the Affordable Care Act was being debated under President Obama's first term. And back then, it was really the idea that the federal government would start acting kind of like an insurance company and offering insurance policies for the general public. Think of it as like a much more broadly available version of Medicare or Medicaid. Obviously, that didn't happen at the time. It was a big debate didn't end up being part of Obamacare, but it's kind of floated around. How do you think the fact that it didn't happen then is informing the discussion right now? That's a really good question, because what happened coming out of the ACA's passage was that that law really helped people understand how healthcare costs differed in different parts of Colorado. And especially it showed that in these mountainous regions, resort communities and some of the rural areas, that costs were much higher for health insurance. And according to one expert I spoke to, Joe Hanel at the Colorado Health Institute, that new knowledge of that disparity helped create a new appetite in the state legislature for taking on health care costs, which they've done in a couple different ways over the years. Governor Jared Polis has talked about this a lot on the campaign trail, in speeches. Here's his first state of the state address. You know, our of course, our ultimate objective is to work together to bring universal, high quality, affordable health care to every family in Colorado. 
But the work that we do has to begin with reducing costs and saving people money. And we will work together in this legislative legislative session to do so. And this was in 2020. Uh, it's really simple market economics. When you have more choices as a consumer, companies have to compete for your business, which means lower prices. Uh, we estimate that the public option will save Coloradans an additional 9 to 18% on their individual premiums. And, and this was his most recent speech earlier this year. And we also look forward to adding an affordable Colorado option that gives Coloradans, especially in rural areas, more choice and savings when it comes to selecting a health So clearly plan. we've got polis and Democrats interested in health care costs. Why do you think the public option is the solution they've gotten behind? I see a couple factors. I think the public options kind of lingered in people's minds. Maybe it's a regret, the one that got away during the Affordable Care Act. And I should back up here to say the Colorado public option would be the state trying to do this at a state level, opening mm -hmm. up a state insurance plan, basically. Mm -hmm. From what I've heard from experts, though, it tackles two of the most common problems or two challenges. It gives government more sway over what coverage is offered. It gives them more power to dictate what benefits should be and what deductibles should be. And then the way it's being set up in Colorado and in the other state that's tried it is it gives more control to the government over what hospitals can charge. It allows the state to really dictate a lot more of hospital costs. And that's obviously a huge factor in overall health care costs. So if the backers got their way in this past, it became law. What are they hoping would be different for the average person in Colorado? And would most people be able to be part of this option? That's a really good question. So the bill that's on the table right now applies to the individual market and small groups. So basically people who are buying insurance on the exchange on their own and, and you know, some small businesses as well. Is that a lot of people? That's less than 10% of the population by a long shot. So, you know, uh, <laughs> depends on how you define a lot. It's an important segment of the market because costs can get really high if you're responsible for buying your own insurance mm -hmm. and you don't have an employer bankrolling you on that. The bill as written would say, hey, health insurance industry, we're going to give you a chance to do this on your own. We want you to lower average insurance costs in each county by 20% over the next few years. And if you don't do that in 2025, Colorado spins up basically a state-run government insurance option. Hmm. Kind of the carrot and the stick? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Possibly more, more stick than carrot, depending on who you ask. And, you know, with that, again, the, the state would be putting in more controls on you know, basically forcing hospitals and healthcare providers to accept this government plan and forcing them to accept lower or limited payments for their various services. So big change. Hmm. According to Joe Hannell, the guy at the Colorado Health Institute, that could prove really popular if they end up doing that. That plan would probably fairly quickly come to dominate the individual market. In private insurance companies would might not be competitive against it. It would pay lower prices to hospitals and almost certainly have lower administrative costs than private companies do and probably offer a lot lower prices and people would buy it. So, Andy, if this came to be that the insurance industry could not compete with these plans, they're not going to be happy with it. We've seen the hospitals are, are not happy with this bill. It's very contentious. Yeah, it's been really a roller coaster. 
like we mentioned earlier, industry groups are really coming out strong advertising against it. I just got a mailer yesterday about this. And what are they saying is their main arguments? I'm hearing, you know, hospitals could be put out of business. Healthcare professionals could lose their jobs. Just, yep. They're painting this very dire picture if this comes to be. Yeah, that's right. And we got a good example of that at the 10-hour committee hearing uh, that they recently had where a lot of health industry people, just a, a parade of doctors and executives came out. And like you're saying, they, they're arguing that it's going to cut into revenues, that it's really going to hurt the most vulnerable hospitals, the safety net hospitals, the rural hospitals, and also that it's coming at a time when hospitals are really off balance. Here's how uh, Dean Sanpei, he's a senior vice president at Centura Health, described it. What HB 1232 and coronavirus have in common is the uncertainty it is creating for our caregivers and, by extension, fear. This bill is causing us to be afraid we won't have the supplies we need to care for our patients. We are afraid we won't have the beds we need. We are afraid we won't have the meds we need. Think of sending the firefighter into the burning building with him worried about if he'll run out of water while in the building. But, you know, on the other hand, we've also heard from people who say they badly need help with their insurance costs. I spoke to Rachel Beckover. She's a landscape designer who splits time between Denver and and, uh, the Western Slope. And she said she's spending $14,000 per year on medical bills because of her diabetes. I try not to bring too much into this about my feelings about the insurance company, but they just continue to see increased profits while my costs continue to go up. And I just don't think it's right. And I think that government has to do something about that. It's kind of like for and against this, the pandemic can play a role in kind of making your case. There was a similar bill introduced last session, and I wondered if it was going to come back just because of the pandemic and all the stress hospitals have been under. Clearly, a lot of negotiating going on behind the scenes here. The sponsors are trying to get the hospitals in support of this legislation or at least neutral. Andy, what are the big sticking points? And I know it's very complicated, but can you boil it down to the top few things they're working on? Yeah, Benta, what's really interesting is that despite the really strong objections you're hearing from the health industry and how far apart these parties seem, they actually are negotiating on it. And the sponsors say, and the hospital association said, they may actually be able to reach a deal where the hospital association becomes neutral or supportive of it. Hmm. The big staking points are, first of all, how much does this cut into hospital profits? How do they set those payment rates of how much hospitals can receive? And then there's an even bigger question of who actually runs the Colorado option. In the bill as it's written, it would be basically the government. But in a compromise that they've been talking about, maybe private insurance plans would be allowed to operate and sell the so-called public option. It'd be more of a public-private option. You know, the government designs it, but the private insurance companies sell it and operate it. I talked to a couple Democratic lawmakers who said that they think if the hospitals become neutral, that it will definitely make it easier to pass this through the House, even though Democrats have a pretty wide majority. Yeah. You know, this is a tough vote, given Mm -hmm. the difficult year healthcare providers have had in hospitals and the role they've played in the pandemic. And especially newer lawmakers and these dire arguments from the hospital association and and people are really concerned about what are the impacts of this. And if they vote this way, could it have you know, bad ramifications in their districts or for their constituents. Yeah, people really care about their health care, obviously. And I think that if Democrats have a way that they don't have to go this alone and be solely responsible for this bill, if they can get some industry support, that would make them a lot more comfortable. And then in the Senate, there's there's a narrower 
margin there. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a tougher vote. Well, and then what about Republicans? So even if hospitals do become neutral or eventually support this legislation, that doesn't mean Republican lawmakers are necessarily going to come on board. And we're, we're yeah. seeing strong, strong opposition. Mm-hmm. And I think this can be highlighted during the committee hearing, which was like 10 hours long. Yep. House Minority Leader Hugh McKean actually sat in that committee for that hearing. He swapped out with one of the committee members so he could be there. Typically, legislative leaders, they don't serve on committees. They're juggling a lot of other things and that takes up a lot of time, but he really wanted to be there. He said he believes this is the first step, if this passes, to single-payer socialized medicine. Hmm. That's a pretty strong statement. I think a lot of other Republicans think that too. Yeah, that's a pretty fundamental change. And I would say that McKean also, in in a letter he released publicly, threatened to grind the work of the House to a halt, Hmm. potentially. And, you know, Republicans do have some tools to do that. As session continues and the timeline gets crunched, there are ways to slow things down, depending upon how this goes. One more point here that I think is going to come up a lot in the rest of this debate is that there is one other state, like we mentioned, it's Washington, who's done a very similar public option style plan that like Colorado is now talking about offered by private insurance companies designed by the government. And it had kind of an unexpected result in the first year. The plans that were being sold as the public option plans were actually more expensive than the private market plans in the same tier. Not the result they were going for. It wasn't. But I talked to some experts about this and they they said that, well, this is the first year it's been on the market. Just like the ACA, it could take some time to settle out. And that also, you know, you can't always just compare premiums. Those plans that they introduced included some different benefits that you wouldn't be able to get, like a a much lower deductible. To me, it just shows, (laughs) highlights even more how complex this is. Yeah. And you're tweaking things and you can't predict, or you don't always predict what's going to happen. Because clearly, if you're passing a bill to lower costs and they go up, that's... That's not what you want to do. You're trying to shape a market that is very, very complicated and has a lot of players in it and matters a lot. Public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland with an excerpt of the latest Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear the full episode and the rest of the season through Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For many hospitality workers, the pandemic has been a nightmare. Layoffs, reduced hours, capacity rules that are constantly changing. It's why we're asking you to name people who've provided exceptional service in the last year. Perhaps a cashier whose smiling eyes made your day, a server who handed you a hot meal to go. Email us, coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. We do ask that you have no financial tie to whatever the establishment is. And our series begins Monday with a Longmont woman who regained a semblance of normalcy thanks to a local brewer. Danny greets us with a masked warm smile every time and always makes time to explore new flavors of beer with us. God, what an incredibly flattering thing to say. It's hard in this time to think that we can express ourselves even with masks on. And warmth doesn't have to be seen, it can be felt. Join us Monday as Coloradans send a little love to their favorite servers. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. We'll remember a trailblazing attorney and state Supreme Court justice. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. 
If you try to buy a gun in Colorado, will you have to go through a background check? How many gun shops are there in the state? And what exactly does open carry mean in Colorado? These are just some questions from listeners in the last few weeks, and you'll find the answers at CPR.org. The history of Colorado's gun laws, what's being proposed, 10 questions you asked about firearms and gun laws in Colorado, answered at CPR.org slash gun questions. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Brains and a bow tie. Two things that stood out about State Supreme Court Justice Gregory Kellum Scott, the first and only African-American to sit on Colorado's high court, died at age 72 at the end of March. His friend and colleague, Judge Gary Jackson, will remember Scott's smarts and panache with us. And Judge, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Your friendship with Gregory Kellum Scott began in 1977, I think. You met him through the Sam Carey Bar Association for African-American Lawyers, which had just formed six years prior. What stands out about that period? You and he are both young black attorneys in Colorado. Well, I think what stands out uh, in that period for me was this was a time that there were a number of young black leaders. Uh, These were black attorneys that had come from various states, uh, had come to Colorado. Uh, Most of us were first in terms of what we were doing. Uh, For me, I was a a deputy district attorney and an assistant U.S. attorney. And I was, uh, at that time, the only black deputy district attorney as well as a U.S. attorney in the Tenth Circuit. Mm-hmm. With with Greg, he came here he, uh, to work a job uh, at the Security Exchange Commission, and he was the only black attorney in the Security Exchange Commission. About the same time, Wiley Daniel had arrived in Colorado from Michigan, and Wiley was a, a corporate lawyer on 17th Street, and he was one of the very few black attorneys on 17th Street. So there were a number of us that were all about the same age. I'd say that we were under 30. Mm. Uh, we were getting our start in the profession, and we were trying to make a difference. I mentioned Gregory Kellum Scott's brains and his bow ties. Both apparently stood out to you. And working at the SEC was really a sign of how bright he was. That's not an easy job as an attorney. And that's correct. So, um, you know, you're dealing with uh, corporate business security matters. So it does take a lot of brains. Uh, Greg was on law review at uh, his law school, Indiana University, which demonstrates that he was probably in the top 10 percent of his class to be on law review. Law review meant that he was a great writer and that he was a great thinker. And it was clear to everyone when we met him that uh, he was a very, very intelligent man. Say just a few words about the bow ties, would you? Well, the bow tie was something that sort of set him apart. I mean, uh, at that point in time, very few of us were wearing bow ties. And I know that uh, if there was ever a... uh, professional occasion. Mm. He would have that bow tie on. And uh, as it turned out, once he got on the Supreme Court, there were many judges that 
emulated him in terms of wearing a, a bow tie. I can think of uh, Raymond Dean Jones when he got appointed to the uh, appellate court. He was our first African-American member of the Colorado Court of Appeals. Raymond would wear a bow tie. I'm sure it was uh, to, in some part, emulate uh, Greg Scott. Democratic Governor Roy Romer appointed Gregory Kellum Scott to the court. And I understand there was quite a, a campaign to choose him specifically because there's a you know nominating body that comes up with a few names. And there was a lot of support for uh, a future Justice Scott, correct? You know, there was a lot of community support, a lot of support within the profession. Uh, Gregory Scott, uh, was our first and only black Supreme Court justice. So the type of support came from many, many community leaders, uh, such as Mayor Wellington Webb. Uh, he was a supporter of Greg Scott. Mayor of Denver. And Mayor of Denver. Uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, the specialty bars at that time, it would have been the Sam Carey Bar Association the Colorado Hispanic Bar Association, the Colorado Women's Bar Association, uh, all were in support of uh, Gregory Scott to be our first uh, black member of the Colorado Supreme Court. I'm sure also that there would have been the type of community support from uh, the NAACP, the Urban League, uh, probably the Chambers of Commerce because he was so business-oriented that the Chambers of Commerce would have been in support of uh, him being appointed. A case that stood out to Justice Scott, he apparently mentioned it when he retired, was 1999's Hill versus Thomas. Scott wrote the opinion, upholding a buffer zone between demonstrators and people entering abortion clinics, uh, this is a case that eventually touched the U.S. Supreme Court. And I thought I'd, I'd read just a bit from Justice Scott's decisions to hear his words here, uh, quoting him. Shortly before 1993, many citizens seeking medical counseling and treatment at Colorado healthcare facilities were openly subjected to verbal abuse and on occasion were physically assaulted while entering or leaving healthcare facilities. Confronted by these threats, the Colorado General Assembly developed a statute intended to acknowledge a citizen's right to protest or counsel against certain medical procedures, while also assuring that government protects a person's right to obtain medical counseling and treatment. And Scott goes on to write, We conclude that the First Amendment can accommodate reasonable government action intended to effectuate the free exercise of another fundamental right, an individual's right to privacy, here represented by access to medical counseling and treatment. Does that decision stand out to you? Well, it does, because it shows to me the intellect of Justice Scott, because he was basically balancing a person's right to protest under the First Amendment, as well as a person's right of privacy under various amendments. And so his uh, decision... Uh, which I have read, demonstrated his understanding of the Constitution, the various amendments, the various uh, Supreme Court and appellate court cases across the country in which there was an attempt to do a balancing between the right of privacy and the right to protest. 
I think of that right of privacy as, as penumbrial, kind of emanating from the Constitution, if not explicit in it. Uh, and, you know, that's been a controversial area of the law, no doubt, uh, but an underpinning of it in this country for sure. Well, I agree, because it seems to me that that right of privacy basically would have started under opinions by J Justice Brandeis back in the 1890s. And it's uh, been uh, discussed and argued, and, and there have been various opinions over the years in terms of uh, the right of privacy and what various amendments uh, it derived from. Judge, you graduated from CU Law School, and I, I know your son did as well. Before we go, tell us how uh, Justice Scott made your son's graduation extra special. Well, thank you. And uh, as uh, you know, uh, Greg Scott, his wife Carolyn, they were close uh, family friends. And when, I'm, when uh, our son graduated from CU Law School, Typically, there's a ceremony where you're sworn in as a lawyer. Mm. Greg Scott allowed us uh, and our son Michael uh, to come to the Supreme Court and did a private swearing-in ceremony for our son. So that was special for us, special for our son, and it demonstrated the type of uh, friendship and sensitivity that uh, Greg Scott, uh, the type of man that he was. Do you miss him? I do miss him because he was a, first of all, he was a vanguard. You know, he uh, uh, was a role model for so many of us that are judges now. He was a role model for so many individuals that uh, have gone into the business corporate practice. And uh, our current uh, Chief Justice, Brian Boatwright, was a student of uh, of Greg Scott at DU Law School. Oh, wow. And so I miss him because uh, he set the standard for all of us in terms of uh, preparation, um, modesty, uh, and uh, caring for the community. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry for your loss, Judge. Thank you so much for having me. Retired Judge Gary Jackson of Denver, remembering his friend and colleague Gregory Kellum Scott, who died March 31st at age 72. Scott was the first and only African-American justice on the Colorado Supreme Court. Opening a comedy club in a pandemic sounds laughable, but it is seriously what David Rodriguez has done in Fort Collins, and he's managed to find humor in the challenges. I know how to run a good comedy show. Like, that's what I know. And Fort Collins didn't have a comedy club, so it was easy to get investors. I was just like, it's going to work. There's not one. <laughs> and then they gave me money. And then, so we got started, and then I had to learn about business. <laughs> That's, there's a lot of, did you know there's the things that you have to, I didn't know. I was like, I'll just run comedy shows, I'll get people who know how to run a bar, it's great. And then I got in, I'm like, Google, I'm like, ooh, what are taxes? <laughs> you know, like that's, there's more to it than just getting people in. But I'm learning. 
Rodriguez says, from conception to opening night, it took three years to make the comedy fort a reality. And David joins us from Fort Collins. Welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. I am currently in the comedy fort doing chores in between (laughs) this interview and the rest of my day. Oh, what are those chores? I'm just curious. Um, I've got to change the marquee over from last night. I have a couple things I need to clean up before the bar staff gets in. And uh, I have to do payroll and a couple other computer things. It's not glamorous necessarily, opening a It's really, party. really not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was just going to be all bringing my friends in to tell jokes and having a good time. And it's mostly that, but there's also stuff that's very necessary that's not as fun. I understand that when you got keys to the building there on, I think, North College Avenue, it, it, it wasn't keys plural, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just one key and it said, do not duplicate on. And I was like, well, I guess I just have the one like that's I, cause I, I mean, like it said in that, in that clip, like I've never, I'm not handy. I don't know anything about, uh, you know, getting hardware together and I've never, I, that's, I, I respect the security of the do not duplicate. And so I was like, well, I, I, I guess I just have the one key. I can't get it. But I found out, I, I, I don't know if you know this, I found out that if you go, you can go to a hardware store and if you pay uh, about 45 cents, hmm. they'll just do it. <laughs> they'll, they, won't, they won't ask. They'll just be like, this is your key? I'm like, yep. And they'll just do it. So... Uh, if you need, and my wife was very nervous. She was like, I'm pretty sure that's like a felony. (laughs) And I was like, that made me scared. I'm like, well, I hope not because if it is, then, you know, old Gary down at Ace Hardware is going to be serving multiple life sentences for his, (laughs) his key related crimes. Why do I have a feeling the tags are still on your pillows and mattresses? You wouldn't dare rip them off and violate the law. What made you want to leap from a career as a stand-up comedian to opening your own club? Yeah. I, I mean, again, as I said in the clip, there's not one. We, we don't have a club here. And having, I've always, I started stand-up here in Fort Collins. And when I started, uh, it's a, it was a small scene, but we had an amazing open mic at Hody's Half Note, which is now the building that the comedy club is in. And I was like, this is so great. The scene is so great. Like, how come there's not more comedians doing it here? And everybody Mm. was like, well, you get, you know, you get funny here. And if you want to advance in stand up, you have to go down to Denver. And I was like, I bet we, there's, the crowds are amazing here. There's enough people here. We could build something here. And I think it's always just kind of needed a central hub, which a comedy club provides for a city and its comedians. Official opening night was February 12th with headliner Shane Torres, uh, who's been on mm-hmm. Conan, Comedy Central. I was thinking, I, was like, I know that I am getting older because I have started to make more noise laying down than standing up. Yeah, that's a thing that happens somewhere after 30. Like, as soon as my head hits a pillow, I just... <laughs> just get this day off of me. I turn over on my side, I sound like a city bus coming to a stop. It's like, hey. 
and the next morning I wake up in more pain than I was the night before. It's like, how are you? How are you sore from rest, mother? Because it's not cruel that you get old. It's cruel how fast it happens. <laughs> David, it seems like COVID is particularly cruel for comedians because laughter, like singing or shouting, means droplets that can spread the virus. Do you want to reflect on yep. that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that it was pretty much the worst news possible when it came out. And, you know, when, it, when the pandemic first started, we went on lockdown and they were studying and learning everything they could about it. And like the article came out and comedians, every comedian saw it. It's like the headline was like most dangerous thing is being indoors, tightly packed in and laughing or shouting We're like, well, cool. That is literally <laughs> the only thing that's important to a good comedy show. Uh, so, I mean, the, you know, we, we pivoted and went to virtual shows and outdoor shows and everything we could do to keep working on on the craft through this as safely as possible, but there really nobody was able to find something that could match the the energy and the electricity of of a live indoor crowd. You do have that to a limited capacity now at the Comedy Fort in Fort Collins. What are a few of the steps you're taking to keep people safe? Yeah, yeah. Um, fortunately for us, you know, being a year into this, kind of the, the general public knows the rules and they know the protocols. So everybody's wearing masks inside and the tables are, are spaced out to give distance in between things. And I invested in upgraded HVAC for circulation inside and, and everything, you know, that the that the state has said we should do and that scientists have said that we should do as many precautions as possible. But I still tell people, you know, I, I put some verbiage in the emails that if if you don't feel comfortable being indoors or if you or somebody you come in contact with is at high risk, like still don't don't come like it's still a high risk activity. This is we're seeing a lot more people that are vaccinated and that have antibodies and stuff. And, and luckily that's rolling out quicker than than the initial timelines were. So it's it's getting safer by the day. And my staff is now fully vaccinated, which is a oh. huge relief. Are you making money? Um, you know, a little bit. Uh <laughs> it's <laughs> it's we're our, our capacity we're legally allowed to be at 50%, but with the spacing, I can't get really more than about 50 people in the showroom safely. So uh, we're really at like 35% capacity or so. Hmm. So um, with that and only having shows currently on the weekends, like eventually we'll have, you know, uh, improv nights and open mic nights and local showcases and contests and stuff that we can really, you know, pack a lot more bodies in when it's safe to do so. So with a, I mean, with a limited capacity and limited days and shows, we're, we're still, the response has still been, so good that we're we're covering the bills with just this. So wow, I'm okay. I'm excited to see what can happen when it, you know, opens up to 
Okay, so David, you've been building and running a comedy club. You are also a husband and father trying to figure out remote learning. So let's sit back for a few minutes and listen to a recent bit about that. Zoom kindergarten. (laughs) Picture that. Like, that's... It is... These teachers need to be paid... 14 to 15 million dollars a year. (laughs) Are you kidding? Like, imagine like a Zoom meeting with your family. Like, grown adults still, after a year, have no idea. You're like, you turn your screen. No, your microphone. (sighs) All right. The screen, you can't even, call them. Can you call them? We got to call them while we're talking, you know? (laughs) They got to go on speakerphone, like on the lap. Okay, so that's adults. Now, kindergartners. Trying to keep, like, I can't even keep my one kindergartner focused on a thing. And these teachers have to keep 20 of them on task from, without being able to, like, see and touch them. That's insane. And if you want a little sneak peek of being a, a parent with a kindergartner with remote learning, here it is. I'll give it to you. There's the day of a kindergarten, kindergartner in, uh, in online Zoom. She's got her headphones on, uh, and, but I can still hear the computer. <laughs> So I'm like, what are her headphones plugged into? What is she? I don't know what she's listening to, but she's pay- it seems to be paying attention, so I'm not going to bug her. All I hear is the teacher all day. All I just hear is the teacher going, Avery, 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 unmute, Avery. Put that down. I, what is, put it down. That's not what we're doing. Avery. Turn your screen back on, Avery. Avery, it's the button. I know you know. Avery, Jackson. Jackson, stop that. Jackson. Put it down. Jack, get your parents. Jackson. Is your mom? Not your. Your mom is dead. Jackson, get your dad. I forgot. That's Jeremy. You get your mom. Jeremy. Avery. That's for eight hours. That is what. I listened to for months. I've heard that bit now several times in preparing this interview. <laughs> it makes me laugh every single time, David. Yeah, the, the names were changed to to protect the uh, innocent kindergartners. <laughs> oh, okay, what a responsible father and comedian. I'm yeah. just I'm just so curious what it feels like because you talked about the chapter of the pandemic when you're all you know Zoom comedians. What does it feel like to hear audiences laughing in person again? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I described it as electricity earlier, and that really is what it feels like. It's there's uh, there's energy in the room and it's positive for the first time. And people are just watching people have a great time is awesome. Uh, and also watching comics, like that's one of the most rewarding things is, you know, uh, getting my friends who are comics, getting them stage time for the first time in a year and watching them enjoy themselves on stage and and have a great time. Like it's just all around so positive. And it's crazy to me that this is work like this is a, a business because it doesn't feel like it most of the time. Oh, what a nice position to be in. Thanks for providing some laughs at a pretty tough time. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 my pleasure to do so and I'm I'm excited that it has gone smoothly so far and I'm excited to see where it goes. 
Funny man David Rodriguez has opened the Comedy Fort in Fort Collins during a pandemic. No joke. Finally today, a simple stroll leads to global headlines. Westminster 8th grader Jonathan Charpentier was walking with his grandparents when he made a discovery. We were looking for just different types of rocks, and I spotted something shiny laying on the ground. So I picked it up, and I couldn't quite tell what it was when I had just picked it up, but we washed it off when we got back home, and I knew that it was not a rock. He was right. It wasn't a rock. It was a dinosaur tooth. Jonathan, who's 14, then jumped online to see what he could find out. One thing I noticed was that there was a serration on the back of all of the teeth, all of the T-Rex teeth, and the tooth that I had found matched that. So he emailed the Denver Museum of Nature and Science with a picture. Scientists confirmed he'd found a partial T-Rex tooth. And they said, based on where he found it, it's probably 60 million years old. Jonathan decided to donate his find to the museum, and the museum invited him to meet with dinosaur curator Joe Sertich, who showed him the other T-Rex teeth on display. The museum was grateful and excited because it's the first artifact found in the area since 1992. He said that it's very likely that there is more stuff out where I had found the tooth and that we would probably go back out there again to look around. So does Jonathan want to be a paleontologist someday? I would found dinosaurs interesting before, but really had no desire to be a paleontologist. After this find, it seems like little, a little bit more of an opportunity, but still not a career that I would be fully, fully interested in. That is Westminster 8th grader Jonathan Charpentier on his dinosaur dental discovery. And that's our show for today, with thanks to a team that's always unearthing stories. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. At a certain age, they stop asking what your favorite dinosaur is. I like the Velociraptor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.